Hey, look, we're in the middle of uh, going through Hebrews, and last week I, uh, I preached about the fact that um, suffering is actually God's servant to bring us to completion. And if it was good enough for Jesus, which is what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, that Jesus was made perfect by uh, the sufferings that he went through, if it's good enough for him and he's perfect, it's good enough for us who are imperfect. All right, and I promised you today that what we'd do is we'd actually have a little bit of a look at the dynamics of uh, how suffering perfects us. All right, how does it actually work? And so what we're actually going to do today is we're going to look at three different case studies. Eventually, I just want to give you a little bit of an intro about suffering first. At the end of the day, uh, what we've been saying or what I've been saying at the project and what we believe is that suffering is God's servant and it's uh, your servant too. And it's something that can be of great help to you. And uh, we actually have a very, very broad view of suffering. Let me give you the Oxford Dictionary definition of suffering. Um, it's to experience or be subjected to something bad or unpleasant. That is the view of suffering that we have. So that's going to range everywhere from the cat scratched me when I walked out of the house today, right, right up to uh, my husband died, my wife died, um, terrible crimes have been committed against me, uh, the Holocaust, all right? So we've got this spectrum that goes right from bad and unpleasant things that might seem small, but yet, ironically for us, the things that are small tend to get pretty big for us because that's kind of the nature of suffering is that it tends to dominate us. So we're going all the way from there right through to the worst thing possible. And this is what James chapter 1 says about suffering, which echoes Hebrews chapter 2. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How'd you go in the last week? Just, I mean, they've come, haven't they? Has anyone here had anything happen in the last week that was bad or unpleasant? Yeah, all right. Yeah, did you approach it with a smile? Because that's kind of, and I'm not having a go at you, but that's what James is saying. He's saying, count it all joy, all right? So when your life goes to hell in the middle of the week, you should kind of go, well, this is really good. That's what James is saying. <laughs> Now, instinctively, we go, this is really bad. I need an airlift out of this. I need healing. I just need to be removed from this situation or it needs to be fixed. He goes on to say why you should count it all joy. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, some of you, let's be honest, I reckon there's probably some of you in the last week where some bad things have happened and you've just, you've honestly, you've just gone, sweet, this is a really good opportunity because I think God's going to do something through it. Even one. Did anyone, like, let's be honest, it's not about being negative, right? But did anyone have one this week where you're just kind of going, I think God might do something in me through this bad, unpleasant situation? Crowther did. All right. Anyone else? Okay, a couple. Good. Good. See, that's good. This is exactly what James is saying should happen, right? Because when steadfastness has had its full effect, um, he says this in verse 4, he says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Yeah, that is a good place to get to, isn't it? If, you, if all the sufferings and the troubles and the bad and unpleasant things that happen to you make you perfect and complete, lacking nothing, like who doesn't want to be there? That's a good place to be in. you just got to go, hell to go through hell to get there. <laughs> That's basically how it works. All right, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to show you a clip because suffering doesn't often feel like James chapter 1, does it? So I count it all joy. This is really cool. It more often feels like Bruce Almighty. So I'm going to show you a clip from Bruce Almighty. Well, thank God you're all right. God, yeah. Let's thank God, shall we? For his blessings are raining down upon me. Wait, that's not rain! 
Bruce, please don't do that, honey. You know that everything happens for a reason. That I don't need. That is a cliche. That is not helpful to me. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. I have no bird. I have no bush. God has taken my bird in my bush. Oh, I see. So, so God is picking on you? Is that what you're saying? No, he's ignoring me completely. He's far too busy giving Evan everything he wants. Oh, that's great, Sam. But you missed your target. I'm over here! Don't get mad at the dog. It's not the dog's fault. No, it's God's fault. You gave him the wrong coordinates. You know what? Enough. All right? Will you just stop being such a martyr? I am not being a martyr. I'm a victim. God is a mean kid sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass, and I'm the ant. He could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to, but he'd rather burn off my feelers and watch me squirm. Does anyone identify with that? Hey, see, we're getting the nods now. Yeah, that's me. It's interesting. I mean, it's very profound what he says there. He goes, uh, I'm not a martyr, I'm a victim. Right? Which is, I mean, that's, that's an interesting place that I think is really typical of most people when they go through suffering is they think, I'm a victim. And uh, victims are very hard to, uh, to help sometimes, to be honest. So here's the here's bottom line. We are, as the leadership of the project, we are really excited and really hope that we would be a community that suffers well, all right? And that we would actually help each other to suffer well, because that's really important. So I thought I'd kick off and just give you a couple of uh, tips about how to help each other suffer well, all right? Which doesn't mean that you brutalise people and you bring a baseball bat to church, right? And just like, you know, smashing people's heads on your knees. Suffer well, brother. It'll be for your steadfastness. All right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about once people are in it, how do you help them? Here we go. Here's a few tips for you. If you don't know what to say to fix uh, the suffering that someone's going through, it's probably because you won't fix it with something that you say. All right? So I think um, a lot of the biblical remedies for suffering are very simple, but they're not simplistic, all right? And to actually bring a simple truth and apply it in the depths of someone's suffering is very, very difficult, and it can take a long period of time. And Christians have tended to be, in the past, in my experience, pretty good at coming up with nice little scripture and just go, ha-ha, see, that'll fix it, you know? And you're just going, that fixes nothing. That gets me angry, and it makes me want to hurt you, all right? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I just give it that... That's all you need, that scripture, and that'll all be fixed. And you go, no, it won't, all right? But the truth in it probably, on the other side of the application of the truth, is the simple truth that gets down into the details of what people are experiencing. So biblical truth is simple, but it's not simplistic, all right? And we don't want to apply things in a simplistic way, but we do want to apply the simple truth in profound ways, if that makes sense. You probably should never tell someone that you know how they feel, because you don't, all right? Because everyone's life experience is totally different. Even if it's very similar, there's still unique things about everyone's life experience. So in a sense, no one knows how each other feels. You can use Psalm 88 and also Psalm 22 is a really good one. Psalm 88 is really good because um, Psalm 88 is a really despairing psalm where everything's going wrong and it doesn't end well, all right? It doesn't have a happy ending. And people who are suffering need to learn from Psalm 88 because Psalm 88 is all about crying out to God and asking God for help and not getting the happy ending but keeping on crying out and asking Him for help and drawing into Him. So that's uh, really important. Psalm 22, I reckon, I'll talk about this one a little bit later, is really, really good because it's very overtly a messianic psalm which means it's a a psalm that was written uh, a significant period of time before Jesus but it's about Jesus and it's this uh, flow of suffering 
calling out to God, God helping me. And it's kind of this, that kind of medley runs the whole way through the psalm and it's a good thing to learn from. Um, the other thing that you can do is uh, when you're helping each other is to point to a suffering Jesus. The truth is that Jesus' suffering was far worse than anything any human has gone through. All right? But just be careful. Okay? Because when everyone's in the middle of suffering, it doesn't even matter what it is, the instinctive thought that most people have is this is worse than anything else that's ever happened to anyone else. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Just go, no, Jesus didn't go through this. Seriously, he had it easier than this. You're going, really? Like five-inch nails through your wrists in the centre of the whole world? Yeah, totally. Yeah, mine's worse. You know, my dog died last week and it's terrible. He's just going, serious? <laughs> but you point them to a suffering Jesus because one of the big things that uh, probably most of us uh, have going on inside of our hearts when things go wrong is we think, uh, where's God? God's doing nothing. He should have done something. He should have stopped it. He should have healed someone. He should have maybe raised someone from the dead. He should have, there's lots of things that he should have done and it looks like he wasn't doing anything. Well, in some ways, Jesus could have said that on the cross, couldn't he? What's my dad doing? Yeah, he knew that he was doing something. He knew he was up to something. But the truth is, his experience of it is, uh, why, why have you forsaken me? All right? And so the fact that God, in a sense, didn't rescue his own son from being slaughtered for us and doesn't answer the ultimate question of why the perfect innocent son of God would just die a brutal death helps us to understand a little bit of what God's up to when we're in the middle of something that God doesn't get rid of either. I, um, it's amazing. I, I preached this uh, message last Sunday morning and then Sunday night um, I just felt to ring my sister his daughter had been in hospital for about a week or so and, um, and she just got a whole bunch of issues. My, uh, my niece, isn't it? Yeah, it's niece. There you go. So it's nephew. I'm just, that's weird. All right, my niece. She's had a whole bunch of issues, right? And now it turns out she's just got more issues. They've just diagnosed her with a condition that I think is the first diagnosis of its type in Australia, you know? And so here's one of my sisters just going, what else? It's like... She's got so much to bear already. What else? You know, we're just going to pile something else on top of her. And, um, you know, I, to be honest, I kind of thought, well, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to say to her. So I'd, I talked with her. I tried to understand and identify with uh, the suffering that she was going through and that her daughter was going through. And then I said, look, can I pray for you? And I prayed for her and she, um, she, she started crying. She was crying by the end of the prayer. And uh, I just said to her at the end, I said, you know what? I said, God's always up to something. He's always up to something. I said, and we should always have this curious question that goes on in our heart that's just going, I wonder what you're up to right now. And I said that to her. I said, God's up to something with your daughter and he's up to something with you. I wonder what it is. You know, and she came out and she said to me and I thought, oh man, this was shameful for me too because to be honest, it's been years since I prayed for my sister. I probably can't even remember the last time. That's terrible. But she said to me at the end, she's, this has been going on for a week and a half. She's part of a big church of three or 400 people in Brisbane. And she said to me, you're the second person that's prayed for me. Just going, what? It's just, oh, you know, you kind of, it's like you just got winded because you, you kind of, on, on one side, you're just kind of going, oh, I did something cool. And you kind of go, well, that's the first cool spiritual thing I've done for my sister probably for the last 15 years. 
Anyway, some of you are probably thinking, can we get someone else to preach? <laughs> All right. <laughs> this guy doesn't deserve to be up here. And the last thing is just uh, be willing to tell your own story. All right? Um, we can identify with each other really well and we can help each other by telling our own stories, but only when God is the hero of the story. All right? If someone's really suffering, they don't need you to go up to them and say how much of a legend you are and how you handled the last session really well and how you only had to pray once to get through it. All right? They don't need to hear that. They need to hear how Jesus is the hero and how God's the hero. And if you look at Old Testament uh, narratives, that's a, a consistent theme through every narrative in the Old Testament. Every story is it always somehow ends up talking about how God's the hero. There's probably some times where it doesn't, but they spend lots of time talking about how humans are the zeros. All right? And then it doesn't talk about God. You can see some of those in Judges. A very brutal book. All right. Here we go. We're going to get into a case, a, the first case study. Sorry, I've just got to... Need to replace a washer in my nose. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Case study is one, Second Corinthians one. All right, this is um, this is Paul talking about uh, some suffering. Thank you so much. I had four somewhere. I don't know where they went. Guys are going. They can't organise the tithe buckets. They can't organise tissues. Why are we coming here? He can't pray for his sister. What's going on? Yeah, you're suffering and I'm dealing it out. All right, so um, the first scripture we're just going to have a look at here because the classic thing when you're going through suffering is you don't have the right to tell me what to do with my suffering because you haven't been through what I've been through. So before we look at what Paul says about suffering, I thought we'd look at the suffering that Paul went through. All right, it's pretty straightforward stuff but very brutal. So you should, if your suffering is any less than his, you should listen to him. This is really the logic I'm using. You should listen to him anyway because God inspired him, right? But I'm just on a totally experiential level. If yours is less than his, listen to him. If it's not, um, listen to God through him. There you go. Tricked you. <laughs> Are they false apostles, servants of Christ? I'm a better one. He's scotting just to shame them. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labours, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. All right, he's doing pretty well, isn't he? Because like, a lot of you guys haven't been in jail, you haven't been beaten up countless times, and you haven't been close to death probably that many times. Uh, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's 200 strikes of the whip minus five. 195. Anyone here had 195 on the back? Three times I was beaten with rods. Forget the whips. Let's just get the rods out and beat him up. All right. Once I was stoned. He was, they literally thought he was dead. They stoned him until they thought he was dead. And then they left him. And it almost looks like if you read one part of Paul's writings that he actually had a near-death experience. Um, it's kind of what it looks like where he talks about in, in the body or outside of the body. I couldn't tell. It looks like a near-death experience. Three times I was shipwrecked. Anyone been shipwrecked? A night and day I was adrift at sea. That's pretty intense. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. That's nice. People on my team are trying to get me. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And it's just like, check that out. And then he goes, and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. 
just kind of go, well, he must seriously care about the churches if it ranks with the other stuff. He's kind of going, see that? Look how bad that is. And if that's not enough, I've got this as well, which is the anxiety for the churches. So we're not going to have a confession session, but I'm, I'm kind of assuming that no one really qualifies uh, in the category of saying, I think I've had worse than Paul. Is, that, is everyone cool with that? He's, kind of, he's probably had it worse than me. What does he have to say about suffering? This is our first case study. This is 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 to 7, and I'll make a couple of comments as we go. First bit he says there is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Hear this, and this is simple, but this is really profound. The only true and lasting source of comfort is comfort that comes from God. That's it. You want real comfort in your sufferings? The real comfort comes from God. Now, the reason why this is significant is because when we go through suffering, our instinct is that we just have to find some way to feel better about ourselves. We have to find, we we instinctively search and look for comfort. And Paul says to you, he says, well, you can do that. You can watch TV or you can go and do drugs or you can go and get drunk. But the real comfort comes from God. So you need to go to him to get it. That's the only place it comes. That's the real stuff. Then he goes on to say, the reason why we get this comfort is so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see this? The reason why God's going to comfort you in your suffering is because he has ministry in view. This is not a conduit that ends with you. This is not like God's going to pour his comfort out upon you in your sufferings and you just get to keep it. He pours it out upon you and then he says, okay, now that I've comforted you, it's actually your job to go and comfort some other people. And this kind of happens, all right? And I think generally in the church we do pretty well with this. But you've just got to remember the purpose of you going through sufferings and God comforting you has a forward direction about it. It doesn't terminate with you. He goes on to say, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This one is really jarring. And the reason why this is really jarring is because what Paul's actually saying to you is you don't own your suffering. Your suffering actually belongs to God. And the weird thing about suffering is suffering can be something that starts to identify us. And we think, this is me, this is mine, this is who I am. I'm the person that has gone through this and I'm still struggling with it. And God would say to you, he would say, well, you don't own that. That's part of my son's suffering. And in a sense, what actually happens when God says your suffering doesn't belong to you, he kind of prizes our fingers off our suffering and loosens our grip. I think when we think that our suffering's ours and it's peculiar to us and it belongs to us, we hold on to it and it's harder to let go of. 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. They don't belong to you. All right? So God's got a, a ministry purpose for them. He wants to give his comfort in your sufferings and they're his tool. That's what he's using. Whether it's unjust or just, that's what he's using. And Paul goes on to say, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. 
And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Suffering does not mean that God's plan has failed. It is the plan. Suffering is a sign that we're in the family of Christ. We actually suffer because we carry his name. That's what Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 1 this, and I wonder if, uh, I'm sure that some of you will be able to identify with some of these. This is what he says. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Obviously the brothers knew and the church knew what the affliction was, but as far as we know from the commentaries I looked at, we don't really know what it was. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, and the RSV says, utterly, unbearably crushed. Ever felt like that? Like even just within yourself, you've just felt unbearably crushed. It's like a two-ton block of concrete, literally, has just fallen on your soul or on your heart. Then he says that we despaired of life itself, which... It's got these ideas that there was a total unavailability of an exit and they'd renounced all hope of survival. This is kind of like those moments in your life, if you've ever had one, where you just kind of go, well, I'm just going to die. It's gonna die. I'm going to die. It's going to end for me. And there's, there's no hope. There's no, there's no way out of it. Now, Paul goes on to talk about what the purpose of this suffering was and what God did through the suffering. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And this terminology here is really the idea that it's almost like the, the sentence of death has been passed and we're just waiting for the execution. It's like he's got his head down on the chopping block and there's someone there with a uh, guillotine, I guess, who's, uh, and he's just going, just, it's going it's to happen. So just get it over with. That's kind of the feel that Paul's got here. But he goes on to say, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he'll deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Do you see this? He's kind of gone, this is how bad it is for Paul. He's gone, my head's on the block and it's coming off because they've decided it's coming off. And my only hope right now is not that the uh, guillotine would malfunction. The only hope is that God raises dead people. That's how bad it is for him. But notice here with Paul, he says the point of all this was that the suffering that he experienced actually took him beyond his own strength and he took them beyond their own strength because what it actually did is that it actually exposed where their hope was lying. You see in verse 9 there it says that uh, the purpose of the suffering was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God. That, that's a miracle. All right? Human beings don't do that. You don't do that naturally as a natural instinct a lot of the time. Sometimes you do instinctively because God's given you a new heart. You do actually trust God. But you know, a lot of the time, the natural instinct for us in the flesh, trust yourself. I can get myself out of this. I'm going to be okay. I'll just work harder. I'll find something to do that's going to get me out of this trouble. I'll find some comfort. I'll sort it out. And Paul says here, he was taken to the point where I'm going to die. Literally, I'm going to die probably for Paul so that he would work out where his hope actually laid. And his hope lay in himself. 
And what actually happened in that suffering, and this is case study number one, this is a big idea, is God wants you in your suffering to realise where your hope lies when it's not in Christ. And then he wants to lead you to put your hope in Christ because that will be rock solid for you. You see, see this, how solid this hope is here from Paul. It's, he's almost like now going, well, seriously, they could kill me and I'm okay. They could take my head off and it'll be okay because my hope is in Christ. And I love right at the end there, you must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. I love that because it answers the question, when I'm suffering, should I get other people to pray? Yes, you should. All right? Should you get lots of people to pray? Yes, you should. All right? Get good people and lots of people to pray because the ultimate goal of lots of people praying for your suffering is that lots and lots of people will give thanks to God when he gives you comfort and he helps you. So it's all about his glory. All right? It's all about giving thanks and it's good for humans to give thanks. Amen? It is. Okay, I'm going to show you a quick clip from uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. This is, um, I think she's about 65 or something now, but Johnny at, uh, 19, in 1967 at 17 years of age dove into some water and literally snapped her neck and became a quadriplegic. And uh, she's speaking here uh, about 40 years after she became a quadriplegic. So you can imagine all the... Uh, medical situations that go along with that, apart from the disability, uh, the pressure sores that she, uh, that she had and, and someone having to help her all the time. I mean, she can move her arms a little bit, just using some neck muscles, but she's pretty much uh, immobilised. She's in a, in a wheelchair and she's going to talk about how important suffering is. And uh, she's another one, I think, probably, if someone's been in a wheelchair for 40 years and she's talking about suffering being helpful, you probably should listen to her. And I know God redeems our suffering. The God of life is the only one who can conquer death by embracing it. And so death no longer has a victory. And neither does suffering. Christ has given it meaning, not only for our salvation, but our sanctification. And that's the best part. And it speaks to me so powerfully. It tells me I'm no longer alone in my hardship. My disability is not a flip of the coin. It's not a fluke of fate. I'm not in the middle of some divine cosmic accident. No, my suffering can be redeemed. Oh, the wonder of such a thought that it's all for my salvation and for my sanctification. So God, bless his heart, will often permit suffering as he is allowing in my life even now, after 40 years of quadriplegia with, uh, with my chronic pain and uh, shortness of breath. God will permit that broken heart. God will permit that broken home. God will permit that broken neck. And suffering then becomes like a sheepdog, even in my life now. It's like a sheepdog snapping at my heels driving me down the road to Calvary where otherwise I might not naturally be inclined to go. He's the one who, who takes suffering like a jackhammer and it's like, like, like breaks apart my rocks of resistance. He takes the chisel of the pain and the bite of hardship and chips away at my pride. And then we are driven to the cross by the overwhelming conviction that we just ain't got nowhere else to go. We have nowhere else to go but to the cross. And this 
is how suffering aids us. Because nobody, nobody is naturally drawn to the cross. Our flesh is not inclined to go there. Our human instincts do not lead us there. And this may well be the most important reason every church needs a disability ministry in its congregation. Because when you leave here from Dallas Theological Seminary, you're going to encounter people with disabilities. And they, like no other population, are driven to the cross by the overwhelming conviction that they just ain't got no place else to go. Wise words? I think so. The interesting thing is if you read her bio, I remember reading her bio uh, uh, a couple of years ago, and she just talked about the grappling after she uh, became a quadriplegic. She talked about grappling with what had happened to her, and she was really struggling with grappling with it. And what actually turned her was that uh, a Christian man, I think it was, went and saw her and suggested to her, and he was the first one to say, I think God might be up to something with you being a quadriplegic. And so her thinking and her heart really started to turn because she actually, she actually started to see that maybe this was what God wanted. And that's pretty gutsy. And that's, that's the kind of stuff that she says, I think God wanted me to be a quadriplegic for some purposes that, that, that he wanted to bring about. And that's, that's pretty jarring. It's pretty jarring because uh, a lot of uh, what gets talked about in churches, and we'll talk about it sometimes, is we, we say that God wants people to be whole. Well, yeah, he does. But God's priority is on spiritual and, and soul wholeness over physical wholeness. And the physical stuff will happen to bring about the spiritual and the soul wholeness. Case study two is Psalm 73. Some of you might be familiar with Psalm 73. We'll read a little bit of it and I'll make a couple of comments about it. I'm just going to skip that. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, which apparently is supposed to be good. All right? You guys are sitting there going, yeah, I want to be fat and sleek. That's it. <laughs> They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. So you've got a situation here where uh, the psalmist is looking at all the in inverted commas, the bad people, and they seem to be doing really well, and I'm really suffering right here. That's not fair. How does that work out? And the suffering is actually producing something really beneficial in the heart of the psalmist here. Because what actually happens with suffering is suffering actually blindfolds your eyes. You actually can't see your destiny. Uh, you, can only, you tend to get obsessed with only what you can see. You get obsessed with what is the here and now. We'll read a little bit more. He says, Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. This is your next door neighbour. They just bought their fourth car and you're just going, well, I'm following God and how come my only car keeps breaking down? All right? So how do they get to go and buy all those nice clothes? I'm supposed to be the one who's, uh, who's righteous here, who's following God. He's supposed to bless me. How come they just got a raise? He's a proud, arrogant man that just steps on everyone else around him. Do you get the vibe? Have you ever had that? You just, my life kind of sucks. 
and everyone else's life seems to be going well and it looks like there's no benefit in being a Christian. Well, the weird thing about this is uh, this approach has got a particular focus about it and suffering exposes this focus. The focus is on present happiness, isn't it? This view of happiness has to do with things that are physical, external and immediate. If we actually got right down to the heart of it, the person who's frustrated because the bad people are getting all the good things and I'm missing out really ultimately wants the good things that the bad people have got. True? That's what you want. You actually don't, you actually don't want God that much. You just want his stuff and he's not giving you his stuff. And you kind of feel like you gave him some of your stuff and he's not giving his stuff back because that's always what the deal was, all right? I give you a little bit of obedience and I fast and I tithe and I that sort of stuff and I expect you're going to give me some good stuff, all right? But the focus is wrong. The focus is on the stuff. And created things in this, um, in this context become really central. You see, the truth is that many of us want little more than to be happy. That is to enjoy a life of relative ease in the created world especially when something gets taken away from us. When something that's really precious to us gets taken away from us, our cry can be, I just want that. And what it does is it actually exposes the highest priority that we have in our life at that point in time is to get that thing and not to get God. It actually reveals that we... uh, One thing that we talk at the project here quite a bit about is the fact that everyone worships all of the time. Suffering actually reveals the created things that you're worshipping because they get taken away sometimes. Even if it be a marriage. Even if it be a, uh, a husband or a wife who dies. And we're not saying that those things are bad things. But if that's the ultimate thing that you want, you've actually turned a good thing into a God thing, which makes it a bad thing. It's things in the wrong place that cause things to get messy. You see, whatever is our functional treasure actually is the tool that we use to interpret our suffering. And if something is taken away from us, that's our treasure, our response often will be, God, you're really mean because we're interpreting God's character by the treasure that we had that got taken away. See, it's hard for us to imagine that God could be good and not give us our piece of the good life. And... uh, Suffering has a way of actually breaking that. Note also the conclusions that uh, in Psalm 73 the psalmist comes out with. He says this, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's going, Ah, it's a waste of time. This Christian thing is a waste of time because it doesn't produce anything for me. For all the day I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. He's kind of going, oh man, obviously he's in some suffering because suffering has a way of doing that. You get up, rebuke, (laughs) it's just into you all the time. And and sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and you're thinking about it and he's going, oh, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So basically what Asaph is saying in this uh, psalm is he's saying, God, if he is good, will bless the righteous and he'll punish the wicked. The wicked have been blessed by God while the righteous have suffered. Therefore, God is not good. That's basically the argument that he's come out with. It's an interesting conclusion, isn't it? Because he's focused on the here and now 
on the created things. In some sense, he's found himself an idol that's been taken away from him that's hurting him. And let's be honest, I'm not standing up here as a guru who says this is how you process it because the truth is I could have some of my precious things taken away and I'd write a song if I could. All right? I'm a drummer, so or I used to be a drummer. And they don't write songs apparently. So, But here's the thing. We could write something like that. We could all write a letter to God about that. It's a waste of time. Because we just don't know how we're leaning on created things. And suffering has a way of breaking that. We tend to focus on the good result, but God focuses on the process of making us good. You see that? God's more interested in process than objective. Although the objective is important, ultimately, in the end, he's more interested right now in process. We are tempted to judge his faithfulness on the basis of how many of our desires for this life he has delivered, but he is working to free us from our bondage to the desires of the sinful nature. He's up to something totally different than what we actually want him to be up to a lot of the time. And that's really good. See, this is not like a beat-up thing. This is like, this is really good, because it's actually going to be really good for you if you become a partaker of the divine nature. And the way that you get there is you get on the escalator of suffering. All right? And God puts you on it sometimes, and he goes, I'm going to make you more complete through this one. All right? Let's see uh, how we go with it. In suffering, we conclude that God has forgotten or forsaken us. This is interesting. Like, I think in suffering, whether you theologically know that God still exists and he's with you in your suffering, functionally what actually happens is you start thinking you're on your own and you leave him. And sometimes, maybe you might have even had a conscious thought where you've just gone, well, he's not doing anything, so I guess I'll just have to get it done. I'm going to have to work out a way to cope because he's not doing anything. And then we ask questions that don't have a correct answer like, uh, why isn't God doing anything in my situation? And my sister didn't say that the other night, but if she asked that, there's no way that she can actually get a, the correct answer to it. Do you see that? Because it's already, it's kind of boxed God into a corner. He's not doing anything and he better justify to me who's just become the, uh, the new God with a big G about why he's not doing anything. Now, the better question to ask is, if you're suffering, is you just go, oh man, I just can't see anything that he's doing. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's up to something, but what, do you, what the heck do you think he's doing right now? I've got no idea. And maybe someone else can help and maybe you can even ask God. You can say, God, I just, what, are you, what are you up to? This thing really hurts. What are you up to? What are you doing? And what actually happens to us when we ask these wrong questions is we actually start making comments about God's character and we start thinking, well, he's actually not that good. And in our suffering, we kind of, it can be, especially in more intense suffering, it can just be really jarring because you start getting this idea in your head where you just kind of think, well, maybe God's different to what I thought he was. And you actually start thinking in a negative way that he's way different to what you thought he was. Does anyone identify with what I'm talking about? You think, maybe he isn't that good. Maybe, he, uh, maybe he's not really around that much. Maybe he doesn't really care for me. Maybe he is that really harsh, frowning kind of drill sergeant that I thought he was. And you know, the answer to this, when we start asking ourselves a question, is he as good as what he thought he was? Oh, I thought he was. Maybe he's different. Well, you know what? He is different. But he's different in an infinitely better way than that. He's not different in the sense that he becomes morally bad. He's different in an infinitely better way than that. Suffering exposes the way that we interpret God by our circumstances rather than interpret our circumstances by the word of God. 
or the scripture explains my life or something else does. This is, I mean, human beings, we learnt this in bib counselling training, human beings are interpreters of their world and they're always meant to interpret their world through what God says. And when we go through suffering, often what happens is we reverse the process and we start interpreting God and everyone else by our own experience. It's true. And we end up with the wrong answers and we end up with the wrong conclusions. We conclude that it is God's job to deliver our idolatrous desires to us and when he doesn't, we say he's evil. It shows the parts of our hearts that don't actually want him but just want what he provides. That's what we do in suffering. And Psalm 73 helps us to see that in suffering sometimes we can just be focusing on getting stuff. Here's what Paul Tripp says. He says, um, what is God working on? Is he working hard to provide us with the biggest pile of this world's stuff and this world's happy experiences? If so, he's miserably failed. Even worse, he has used his creative and redemptive power to give us only that which is doomed to pass away. Would this be the work of a good God? Would a good God motivate us to hope in things that are by their very nature temporary? Would he want us to stand on a slippery slope? Would he want our lives to be the passing fantasies of our sleep? Would he be good if he did anything less than than to confront our powerful delusion of the permanence of this world? This is what trials and suffering, death and loss do. He's really, really good in breaking this stuff. Case study three. Hebrews 2, we finally get to Hebrews. This sets us all up to do just a little bit of work in Hebrews. Here's what um, it says in Hebrews 2, verse 11 to 13. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, wants to tell you today, and every time that you read Hebrews 2, Jesus wants to help lead you through suffering. And here's how he does it. The first thing uh, that Jesus does to actually deal with the key issues for sufferers is he actually reminds us about the character of God. And you can see this in Hebrews 2 where it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. You desperately need this. When you get in the middle of suffering and you start thinking, God's bad. He's not doing anything. He's not interested in me. You need Jesus by the Holy Spirit to come alongside you and speak to you and say, he's good. He's good. He's not bad. You need reminding of God's character because in suffering, that's the first thing in a sense that goes Or you start the question, you're just going to go, whoa, maybe he's just out to get me. Maybe he's just a cranky, angry, angry God. But no, Jesus comes alongside and he says, I'm going to tell of your name, Father, to my brothers. And you're all Jesus' brothers and sisters. All right? And so he's committed to that. So you will know when you go through suffering, and I'm sure some of you could testify to this, that God's come alongside by the Holy Spirit and just consistently just keep saying he's good. He's good. He loves you. He's in control of this situation. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. He's got a good reputation. You don't have to give up right here. You don't have to turn to that comfort over there because he's good. He'll come and he'll comfort you. And it's almost like Jesus is this PR person for God in the midst of suffering, isn't he? Where he just kind of goes, I'm going to make sure that my father's reputation stays intact in the midst of your suffering. He'll do it. Has anyone ever had God do that, speak things to you? Yeah? Yeah, he does. This is what he does. 
And sometimes we go through dark times where we start questioning God's character, but the cool thing is God's really patient and he just keeps working with us and walking with us and he'll communicate to us and help us to have a correct understanding of God's character. Point number two there is that uh, Jesus is actually with us in our suffering. Don't you think, this is probably one of the most ironic things about suffering is that God is always with you. And we often think that he's not with us and he's not helping us. And, and it's ironic because the only one who was ever on his own in suffering is with you when you think you're on your own. Do you get that? So he's on the cross and the cry on the cross comes from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in those moments where you think, I'm all alone and this is really, really hard, the cry on the cross tells you that there's someone who's actually right next to you. He's with you in your suffering. And he's, he has to be with you because it says, I'll tell of your name to my brother. So he's with you and he's communicating things to you all the time to help you to get through your suffering. And so Jesus cries out the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. The one who went through that did that so that he could be with you when you think that that's the truth, when it's not. And he's with you all the time. And then Jesus, in uh, Hebrews 2, verse 12 there, leads you in true worship, which is what you need. You go back to Psalm 73, you know that Psalm 73 is happening because there's some kind of false worship going on. And in Hebrews 2, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is actually in the midst of the congregation, he's going to sing his Father's praise. And you need, who knows when you're in the middle of suffering, you need a worship leader. Yeah? You do, don't you? You need someone to help you to worship because that is probably the last thing that you feel like doing. And it's probably the last thing that Job felt like doing in the Old Testament. But in the end, he ends up getting on his knees and he worships God and he closes his mouth. And Jesus will lead you in worship, not just in singing worship, but inspire a heart in you that will worship the Father in the midst of your suffering. And the last thing out of Hebrews 2 is that he shows you how to trust the Father so that you can follow him. You see this? It says in Hebrews 2.13, And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Do you notice the connection there? The first part is Jesus is saying, I'm going to put my trust in the Father. And then the connecting one is, so are my kids. So this is your God leading by example isn't it? He leads by example. And he, puts, he gets put under the most intense suffering and the most intense pressure and he trusts his father. And so he knows that if he leads by that example and he speaks the, the character of the father into your ears and he helps you to worship, that you will too. You can do this. We can all do this because of what Christ has done. Luke 22, 41 to 42. This is a garden of Gethsemane. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. And this probably is the most supreme act of worship in all of history where Jesus says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See? He did it. 
He held his desires in an open hand and he trusted his father. And he sets an example for you to follow. Just want to leave you with this. Uh, I read uh, Luke 24, uh, 41 to 42. Check out 43 and 44. And there appeared to Jesus an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Here's a bit I love. I mean, if, if this could be burned into your head, into your memory, uh, like it is in red there, this would really help us in suffering. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. That, that's the example. That's the example to follow. Because we get in suffering and we pray less a lot of the time, don't we? We call out to God less. What does Jesus do? Being in agony, he prayed more. And he prayed harder with more passion and more zeal. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Why don't you uh, stand with me and I'll pray for you and uh, we'll be done. Jesus, thank you so much for everything that you do. I'm so often like a kid chucking a tanning when things don't go the way I want them to go. You're patient with me. You're patient with us. It must look really, really dumb, the things that we struggle with sometimes compared to what you went through. But you're just really tender and compassionate. And you know that we struggle. And you just want to help us with that struggle. And you set a, just an outstanding example for us to follow in your footsteps. And then you come along and you speak your Father's name to us. And you uphold his reputation. And you help us to be drawn back to you and back to your Father. And not repelled by the suffering. I pray that you'd help us to be really good at that. I pray... I thank you so much that you've worked in some of our hearts that when we actually do go through suffering, there are times where we pray more earnestly. And God, I thank you for everything that you've done and everyone here who's done that at least once in the last 10 years because that's your work. Human beings don't pray more earnestly when they're in suffering unless you're busy at work and you're up to something in us. And God, I pray that as a church, as the project, that we'd be really, really good at praying earnestly in the midst of suffering. And that we'd see maybe your purpose in it. We'd see maybe what you're up to. And I pray, God, for anyone here today who um, is going through some really hard stuff, whether it be emotionally or some uh, situational stuff in their lives, I pray that you'd help them to pray more earnestly, that you'd help them to cling on to you, to seek after you. Help them to see maybe areas where they need to repent where they've made created things the most important thing and they've missed you. God, please help us. Uh, please help us with that because some of us are going to go through some suffering this week. And Jesus, we, uh, it's my heart that you'd help me and you'd help us to do it like you do it. That we wouldn't use it as a reason to blame you and get cranky with you and to disconnect from you, but we'd use it as a reason to pray more earnestly and to trust you more. And that's counterintuitive, God, but it becomes intuitive by the Holy Spirit. And I pray that it would be intuitive this week, that it would just happen as a reflex this week. Amen.